Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The way students are formed in the contemporary West makes it difficult for our minds to accept the empirical truth of functionality. There are many reasons for this, none more insidious than our desire to control the world through our assessment of it. In doing so, We can't but enshrine something wicked as our good thing, good tradition, good person, or worst of all, good ruler. Why? Because in the folly of our own judgment, we believe that we are good. In Scripture, there is only one who is good, not because we recognize him as such, but because he has said so. Until you come to terms with this fact and the meaning of functionality in all its facets, you will never truly be set free from the tyranny of Hellenism and you will never understand the Bible. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 10 to 14. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 316 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We're going to start today's episode with a listener question that dovetails nicely with last week's discussion of fundamentalism and the stance of the biblical disciple relative to the power of human authorities. Hi, Father. I'm on episode 200 so far. Many of my friends say God puts evil rulers in place because evil rulers can do good. So the thinking is, God uses evil for good. However, every incident I have found seems to indicate that the people should not be cheering the evil or sinful ruler and instead be shamed into seeking a godly ruler. So my question is, are we supposed to cheer when God uses evil for good or should I be shamed? This is obviously a question that is at the heart of our discussion of the tension between human authority and God's authority as expressed in the prophets. By episode 200, the answer should start to emerge that power is functional and judgment is functional. If I tell my daughter, do not touch a hot stove because you'll be burnt, and she touches the hot stove. What happened to her hand is terrible and unfortunate. But when she turns to me and says, Papa, look at my hand, and then I proceed to say, I told you so, suddenly this terrible thing becomes useful because now my daughter 
is experiencing the full force of my judgment. I told her, do not touch the stove. If you touch the stove, you will burn your hand. And when you burn your hand, you will know that I am your father. So she shows me the burnt hand, and I say I told you so, and she gets the message, and suddenly something terrible, which functions destructively because it causes her harm, now functions in a useful and helpful way for her edification, not just for her, but for all those she interacts with, her friends, her children, whom she can warn not to touch the stove. I'll give you another example of functionality. It may be that I'm a mean dad, and I will be held accountable by Paul, for example, in the letter to the Ephesians, for being too hard on my children. At the same time, Paul will turn to my children and tell them, Obey your father. He doesn't ask them to evaluate whether or not the father is following the commandment. Because even though I'll be judged for being too hard on my kids, if my kids submit to my stern parenting out of deference to the teaching of St. Paul, they will be edified and God's judgment will be glorified. It is functional. So even when the ruler is evil, you are accountable to God's commandment in your dealings with the ruler. And this is what is so difficult because Westerners or people influenced by Western philosophy want to pick a side, but there are no sides in scripture. God can turn to the left and to the right, and he can show you how either side is compromised. And he can at the same time use one side to edify the other side. And that's what happens all the time. Scripture is a flipping coin. So we have to get out of the habit of trying to pick the good rulers and the bad rulers. There are no good rulers. And that's difficult for Western democracies who really believe in the virtue of their vote. And we'll see this example play out in today's episode because we have scribes and Pharisees who are teaching a teaching. Now, they're not evil. We're not allowed to simply ignore them. Because if the scribes and Pharisees, who are well-versed in Torah, are teaching Torah, we have to do what they say. If they aren't doing Torah, it doesn't matter, because what they're doing is not the reference point. It's Torah that's the reference point. If they command those around them to do Torah, and they do not do Torah, I will be held in judgment if I don't do what the scribes and Pharisees say. Whether and how they might be held in judgment is beyond my pay grade. I don't know. So when Jesus criticizes them, he criticizes them when they contradict Torah and when they go against what is taught. And that's why in the last episode, Jesus countered their traditions of the elders by saying, these are your traditions. This is not what scripture says. And he counters it by saying, this is what scripture says, not because Jesus is inspired or Jesus is better than the Pharisees. It's because Jesus is arguing from scripture and the scribes and Pharisees are not the bowing down to human rulers is to train us to bow down to God's Torah ultimately. Cheering on an evil ruler who does good things is not okay. It's not okay because we don't cheer on the ruler. Why do we cheer on the ruler? 
the only reference point is whether they're following Torah or not. And to be honest, we don't know. According to the Sermon on the Mount, we don't know if he's following Torah. So all we can do is continue to bow down to Torah and just do what God tells us to do and pay a lot less mind, like you said a moment ago, Father, to who our president is and who our leaders are. We pray for them that they might do God's will, and then we go and we try to do the will of the Father as expressed in his Torah. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Already in verse 15, Peter is demonstrating his lack of deference towards Torah. He shouldn't be asking his teacher for the answer to the question. He should be going back to the textbook. This is very difficult for people to understand because we cheat on our teachers all the time. This gentleman who wrote in has taken the time already to binge listen to 200 episodes. That means they're putting time in and effort. But Peter, if he's still asking by now, clearly isn't putting the time and the effort in because the answer to his question has surfaced in every single example in the Gospel of Matthew. We are talking about the righteousness that comes through the judgment which belongs to God alone in Matthew. This is the gospel of the Lord's Prayer, which has as its central feature the admonition against human judgment. So go back and seek the divine judgment, Peter, and you will find answers. This is a great example of what we were talking about before. Peter asked the wrong question. Peter wasn't listening. Peter wasn't paying attention. But we as the listeners benefit from Peter's wickedness because Jesus takes the opportunity to explain his parable. He could just admonish Peter and say, enough. Why aren't you listening? But instead, Jesus elaborates on the teaching so that those around him and we ultimately, the readers, understand precisely what Jesus is saying. This is how God can take a wicked action and turn it into something good. The reference point is not Peter. The reference point is the ability to teach. It's insulting that Peter does not understand the folly of the human judgment that God's Torah is not about making sure you don't get sick when you eat a piece of bread touched by dirty hands. I want to be careful because there was no concept of germs in the classical world. But they did understand that there was a connection between physical health and cleanliness. This is obviously an ancient human practice, a universal human practice. But if Peter still thinks that that kind of human thinking is what's going on, it's because either he's not studying Torah, or he's studying it with scales over his eyes. He hasn't been listening to the instruction that Jesus has provided to empower him to read Scripture. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? This is the question of a teacher who's frustrated with a student who didn't prepare for the quiz. And it's the kind of quiz you can't prepare for the night before. The only way to prepare for the judgment, and this is a kind of foretaste of the judgment for Peter, is to study scripture every day. When you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the night watches, when you get out of bed, 
when you go out of your house and you are walking along the way, you must recite to yourself the precepts of God's law. That is what it means to meditate. And this question comes from not meditating in the night watches. It's that basic and that damning. And that's what's difficult about the math that Jesus Christ will use in the judgment. It's not the new math that takes five minutes to figure out what can be done in 30 seconds by traditional math. It's traditional math. And the numbers will come out in the wash. The danger is that the likes of Peter can easily be swayed by the scribes and Pharisees because they come up with a clever argument. Like you said, Father, if Peter doesn't have Scripture as his basis, if he's not listening to Jesus and understanding how Jesus is reading and reciting the Scripture constantly, Peter is going to be a blind follower of these blind teachers, and he himself will end up in the ditch, as Jesus just mentioned a moment ago. The way that one keeps oneself safe is by staying on the way, and the beauty of this is that God's teaching is not only the path, but also the light that illumines the path so that you don't stumble. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? This is biology 101 with the Messiah. I mean, come on, it's just a piece of fruit or vegetables or grain or a piece of meat, whatever it is, your body processes it, takes what it needs, and the rest goes out in the drain. What does that have to do with the cleanness and uncleanness addressed in the Torah? Now here I want to make a critical point because we talked about Paul's letter to the Corinthians just this weekend and how he deals with the question of fornication. Obviously, sociologically, there are consequences to promiscuity. So Paul uses that example to illustrate what he's saying about fidelity towards the body politic of Jesus. So what he's talking about is fidelity towards God's law, which equates to fidelity towards the body politic of the church. He's not talking about fornication per se. He is relying on common knowledge about the perils of promiscuity, which falls in line with the way that the prophetic literature deals with promiscuity. But he's not talking about sexuality. So when the law talks about clean and unclean, and the washing of hands comes into play, it's something similar. Are we really talking about what we now know to be germs, or are we talking about something else? Jesus repeats himself in this verse of what he just said. Are you also without understanding? Do you not yet understand? Jesus has to say this again, because for some reason it's hard for Peter to wrap his head around or because he believes that we are going to have a hard time wrapping our head around this. And so Jesus repeats it for the sake of his audience, not just Peter. No matter how clean the thing is that you eat or how defiled the thing is that you eat, it all is defiled in the end. No matter what happens, whatever you eat, no one is going to say that what comes out is clean. No one is going to have a debate about how do you make your excrement clean or unclean. There's no discussion of that. Every single thing that comes out after you eat is unclean by definition. It's as unclean as it gets. If that's the case, we must not be talking about the food because we know that the food is going to end up unclean when it comes out. 
why was there then some teaching instituted about the cleanness of hands when one eats? Let's talk about the cleanness of the one eating, not the thing that is eaten. Peter, you have to understand, it's not about the food. It's about you. This teaching of the elders, if you actually want to spend your time thinking about it, we have to think about it in terms of Scripture and about the judgment. It's not about the food. It's about your cleanness following the correct teaching because that's what makes one clean or unclean. Look, I gave my daughter good advice. I told her not to put her hand on a hot stove. If she listens and shares that good advice with other people, and those other people then form a religion around that advice, they're idiots. Because is the body of wisdom that I'm trying to share with my daughter expressed in an example? Or does the example point to the body of wisdom? What does it mean to be clean? What does it mean to wash your hands? And it can function differently. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, Pontius Pilate will wash his hands. Does that make him clean? Now, it's interesting that the Matthaean Pilate is recognizing the need to become clean, to expiate the shame of what he is party to in the execution of Jesus. But is washing his hands going to solve the problem? It's a very clever text. So, yes, you wash your hands before you go into the high place. But what is it meant to remind you of? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And here I'm going to beat my colleague to the punch. The heart is not where you feel. It's the seat of reason on which the law of God is inscribed through repetition, which is what meditation means, through memorization, through the frequent reciting of, so that instead of telling a lie, you speak the gospel when you open your mouth. It's not possible that your heart can be disposed one way and your action can be disposed another way. Corrupt action shows a corrupt disposition of the heart, and correct action demonstrates a correct disposition of the heart. We struggle with wicked people who do the correct thing because it demonstrates that their heart is actually going in the right direction. But we also struggle with the idea that we commit bad actions because we know deep down we're good folks, you know, we're not trying to do something evil. This is what Jesus is trying to teach. Wicked things always come from a mind that is corrupt, a mind that is incorrectly disposed. And you notice how I just switched from heart to mind because I was following what you're saying, Father. These are the same thing when we're talking about the ancient world. So the source of evil, the source of uncleanness, is not the digestive system because that only produces wickedness. But our heart may be able to produce good and it can also produce evil. So if we're going to talk about the disposition of a human being, let's talk about the heart and all the wicked things that come from a heart that is not disposed correctly. Now, let's not talk about 
the heart's disposition on its own because it has to come from good training, which we just talked about. If you're not infusing that heart, infusing your mind with Scripture and not just the idea of Scripture, but the very words of Scripture, then you cannot be correctly disposed and you will create evil. You will commit evil acts. And he just listed out a few doozies here for you. But notice that with the fornications and the blasphemies and the adulteries, there's so much here about loyalty. And you cannot say that you follow God and not be on the path. You cannot say that you are loyal to God when you follow the teaching of Baal, even for a moment. You cannot say that your heart is disposed towards God if you're performing actions that are not godly, that are not divine, that are not according to Torah. I want to talk about the heart and the mind here, but I do not want anybody to allow one ounce of air in between the disposition and the action, because the disposition and the action are linked. It's a three-legged race. One cannot move without the other. There is no disposition that moves one way and uh, action that moves another way. Not possible. They're tied together. They cannot move one without the other. And this is what he's trying to teach Peter here. These are the works of the flesh that he is referring to in verse 19. They are technically an expression or a summary of the technical sins, the things that technically make you unclean in God's law. Paul uses the same lists in his letters, notably in Galatians. But the flesh can't save you from the sins of the flesh. And here it's helpful to think of the Hebrew basar simply because in English, because of the tradition of Western philosophy and religion, flesh has a sexual connotation, but that's not how it's used in the Bible. It refers to things that come from the hand of man, things that are from human beings, things that are decidedly not from God. The one thing in the whole story that comes from God and not from the flesh is the instruction to do his will and the fruit that the instruction produces. So if you want to be clean, it's not going to come from your flesh, from what you put in your flesh or what comes out of your flesh. It's going to come from what is inscribed on the heart through instruction. So it's these things that are condemned in the Torah and reiterated in Galatians chapter 5 and reiterated here. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man, because how can you clean a dirty dish with dirty hands. It's just basic logic. If you don't get the cleanness that comes from the heavens, you're just adding more dirt to something that's irredeemably unclean. The only part that God could possibly clean would be the heart. By meditating on Torah and repeating these words, one has a chance of producing something good. It's like the Jewish blessing if there is no blessing for the action that you perform, the blessing is, thank you, God of the universe, for allowing me to fulfill your commandment. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.